The risk in terms of being caught, would they kill you? It was 19 deaths uh, over a period of six months due to bad heroin in the streets and they couldn't get who it was. They needed somebody to go in and buy heroin, copious amounts of it. And it was my job, come to you as a shock. I liked some of the guys I bought drugs off and I bought guns off. They were likeable characters. Do they have police on their payroll? And then the next thing, his head starts to tilt and it starts to look at my crutch. Oh my God. And I'm thinking, he hears my tape running. But I have never been so close to getting caught out. Imagine just for a second that you are an undercover agent. You're trying to infiltrate a gang and one slip up, one mistake, and your life could be payment. This is the story of David Corbett. Now, for the purposes of this podcast, his image has to be blurred and his voice distorted so that his identity, in essence, can be protected. This is the Into the Mind podcast. My name is Harrison Brown. If you're watching or listening, I hope this helps. David, so you had the choice of any job in the world, but you went for to be a UC, to be undercover. Why? And I never really planned it. I think my my life, if I really wind back to the very beginning and bring you to where I got to with undercover work and then when I moved on, um, I was born and bred in the Gorbals in Glasgow. Um, ran about with the Gorbals teams, ran with gangs. Uh, we got involved in joyriding mm. in cars. And that was really sort of the baptism of... Fire. How I honed into baptism of fire. How I honed into becoming a, a UC because I ran with these guys and played with them, slept with them. We done everything together, and it came to a point in my life. Um, I left school at fifteen, no levels, no hires, nothing, no education. Um, I could read and write, and it got to a point that slowly but surely the guys I was running about with were going into uh, young offenders institutes, mm-hmm. and the reason they were going in was I was a faster runner. Because when things happened, I was well ahead of them and they were getting caught. Um, I don't know if it was destiny. I moved into a few jobs. I tried to be a motor mechanic and it turned out I was allergic to oil. I'm now a motorhead. I love cars. Um, Moved on and then I decided one night, sitting watching the old Z cars, I'm showing my age now, the old police programme and thought, do you know what? That's a bit of excitement. You get Mm -hmm. paid for it. And I'm a good runner and I could catch the bad guys. And... We went from there. And your dad was a policeman? Dad was a cop, yep. My father was in the mounted branch. Um, He was a uniform cop. He was a big influence to me because he realised that I was coming to a fork in the road that Mm. I was either going to be a a young offender and eventually a a criminal or I became a young cop. Mm. And uh, so the journey began and the rest was history. What was the tipping point? So you you described this process of you were within this gang, so to speak, when you were a little bit younger. What was the point that you thought this is going too far? You know, because when you're around friends, you normalize things that your friends do. Yep. But what was the point where your moral compass was skewed to the point of, I need to get out of this? I, I think you became a, a, I was a chameleon. I was probably living the life of an undercover as a young teenager. Mm. I was living the life of uh, running about with the gangsters and the crimes, the young boys doing things. And then at night I was coming home and coming into a settled family unit. Mm. Um, and I suppose I began to see that there was more to life than the guys I was running about with, getting locked up, um, their family going to see them at a Young Offenders Institute. And my parents were taking me out 
on a Saturday night for my dinner and different things. And I thought, I need to start picking. And that's when I decided, right, I need to move on. I had a couple of good pals who weren't into the things that I was into. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you'd probably see, looking back now, I was an adrenaline junkie. Mm. Enjoyed the buzz, enjoyed the chase. But it came to the fork in the road that I could no longer do what these guys were doing and I had to find something else. And that programme on the television changed my whole life. And I thought, I'm going to become a cop. Yeah, I can do this. I, I can do it. And I think later, when I did join the police and I seen that the way the cops talked to some of the young guys, and I thought, you know, you're not commanding respect. Mm. Speak to them on their own level. Get to know them and understand why. But again, I was on the other side of the fence because I had run about with these guys. I knew how they ticked. Mm. And eventually when I became into to being a, a uniformed cop, I am... Um, I'll always remember it. My sergeant came in and said, David, um, we would like you to uh, go down to the CID. They want you to do a job for them. Hmm. I was just a young cop. And uh, I was taken away and I was taken to an office in Glasgow, introduced to a senior officer who said that um, tomorrow we want you to come in with a shirt and tie on. We're going to give you envelopes and the envelopes are going to have addresses on it. And we want you for the next two days to go around these addresses there's taxi money, there's train fares, they're all over the country. Mm. You do your own thing, enjoy it. And I said, what am I delivering? You don't need to know. Mm. Just do it. So I went out and two days later I was brought back to the office and they said, um, you were actually, your details were given to the Scottish Crime Squad and they were told that you were a terrorist and that you were doing letter drops in different locations. And I said, but the people I went to, he says, yeah, they're all retired cops and they were in on it, you were giving them envelopes mm. because you were being surveilled by the Scottish Crime Squad. And really? I went into a room and there was something like 28 guys sitting mm. and they, they were all detectives, undercover detectives, CID officers that moved into the crime squads. And they, they followed me about the country, I'd been in Aberdeen, I had mm. been down in Ayrshire, just doing letter drops. Mm. And the scenario was that I was a terrorist from Ireland. They didn't know it was actually a young cop. And I listened to the debrief. I watched footage of myself being followed. I did not have a clue. I was so naive. Mm. It was unbelievable. But what a buzz. Mm. To be one of them. And that's when your question earlier was, when did you decide? And from that day forward, I'd realised there's more to walking about the beat, pulling padlocks and speaking to old grannies. And they... My career took off from there. I, I got hungry for it. So it was the adrenaline aspect that you think drove you to... Uh, you enjoyed... Your you, uh, your moral compass was wrong when you did these things, but the adrenaline, you enjoyed it. So I you did. thought, let's get the adrenaline without yeah. skewing my moral compass. Absolutely. And yeah. I, I think um, it was a mindset, and, and that's a word that I'll probably use throughout the interview. Um, my mindset was, I can do more. Hmm. I've grown up with these criminals. I've just met the elite crime squad. They're somewhere in the middle that I can move into. Uh, I couldn't jump straight into them, so I had to work my way up, and I moved into a firearms unit, became a firearms officer. Um, I progressed through the uniform, um, and then eventually I moved into the CID, Mm. and I was getting a lot of good captures and a lot of good interviews and a lot of good jobs purely because I could communicate with the people that were in front of me. Yeah. Whether they were uh, a banker who'd embezzled money or whether it was a guy who'd slit somebody's throat mm. or a guy who'd murdered his wife, I could communicate. And that was the biggest part of my 
my mm. career as I was a good communicator. And what was the training like when you were going into these, uh, when you were going into this position? Because you described a process of when you were young, you were living essentially two different lives because yep. you had quite a, a, a comfortable family. However, out in the streets, it wasn't very comfortable and you were living off adrenaline. Yeah. What was the training process like? It was, um, you picked it up as you went along in respect of learning the CID and communicating and then the processes and, you know, giving evidence in the high court. And I get tired of it and I needed another hit. I needed, mm. what am I going to do now? And I decided um, I was going to, during, sorry, during my CID, I was picked for witness protection and there was a, a particularly serious murder in Glasgow. It was two... Uh, gangland members who'd murdered um, a gangland member's son hmm. um, predominantly in the north of Glasgow and they're still still about um, these two guys were murdered and put in the back of a car and left outside a pub in the east end of Glasgow oh my god and I they eventually caught the guys and I was put into witness protection hmm. first witness protection in Glasgow and it was to live with a guy for six months and move him about the west of Scotland until the trial came because this guy that I was under witness protection with was a driver of the car that committed the murder on the godfather's son mm. and he took retribution by murdering two other guys so it was a, a huge huge case in the city uh, and he was a key witness and I went back to Mould Roots living with this guy mm. we had to teach him how to use a knife and fork he was so out there he used to eat with his fingers and I re-educated this guy and we get very close to him. In fact, I still see him to this day. He's now married with a family mm. and he's living in the city of Glasgow. Um, and that was an adrenaline buzz because one, you were protecting somebody, but I was also learning more about the other side of the fence and what these guys do. And from there it culminated that I applied for the Scottish Crime Squad mm. and I was accepted. I went in there and I'd done what I had seen done to me 15 years earlier, we followed terrorists, we followed drugs dealers all over the country and I learned about surveillance and anti-surveillance and how to read a room and picked up and eventually I'd done rural surveillance, um, mm. another buzz, these are all over a period of maybe six years and uh, I learned about rural surveillance digging in, trained by the SAS for numerous weeks, um, mastered that, mm. I needed another adrenaline rush. <laughs> My commander said, would you like to be a surveillance officer on a motorbike? Mm. Give me a shot at that. <laughs> and I shot about the country in a motorbike, up and down to London, 120 mile an hour on motorways, following cars. Um, get tired of that. <laughs> and eventually they said, hey, okay, would you like to run informants, be an informant handler? Yep, done that. And my commander came to me, and this was a big break, and said, we're sending you down to London. Mm. David, would you go down and for an interview, he gave me an address to go to. Asked him what it was. Says, You'll find out when you get there. Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't give you any information? No information. And I knew nothing about deep undercover other than what I thought was undercover with the Scottish Crime Squad when they were doing surveillance. Totally different animal. Flew down to London, um, had an interview with a commander and a, a couple other guys. And they said that my profile fitted what they were looking for. Mm. And I said, what are you looking for? I thought it was possibly going to get transferred down to the Met and they told me that they were looking for somebody to become an undercover operative there would be a course, it would be a three week course mm. psychromatic testing um, you fitted the profile then you would take on a new identity and you would be placed somewhere in the country where there was problems mm. was I up for it? <laughs> yeah. by 
give me give me two of it I'll take it <laughs> so, so you the position you to be an undercover operative and you've got three weeks to train was that right yeah it was three weeks training um, in respect but it was it was your 24-7 you know, right it was mind games played with you and you were taken out in the back of a van and thrown out in a con- country somewhere driven for four or five hours mm-hmm. and told make your way back to this location you had no money no identification nothing didn't even know where you were so you then had to flip into right I'm a criminal mm-hmm. so you either were going to steal a car or you were goodbye however I got back yeah and when you describe the process of you, you you are eventually you've gone through this training process and then you essentially need to wiggle your way into this gang yep, yep. How there's a couple of questions that come to mind. I suppose, how do they, the gang leaders and the, the the drug families, how do they screen their people for being operatives? But also, how do you get your foot in the door? Because you need to probably have a criminal record before you go in. Yep, that's actually called you build a legend, hmm. and you build up who you are, um, where you've come from where you've stayed uh, so that if anybody wants to test your legend so it's like you saying to me okay David you said that you stayed in the Isle of Dogs Mm. for four years whereabouts did you drink? well I would know because I serviced a flat down in Isle of Dogs for four years so that was my legend I Uh. had a flat down there I drank in local pubs down there uh, I might buy drugs down there so if somebody wanted to know who this guy from Scotland was they would say, oh, I know that wee guy. He's a good guy. Mm. He's up for it. Mm. So the criminal fraternity is very much like a, a network that somebody will know somebody who will know somebody who will know somebody. Mm. And if they, they go the full circle and it'll come back and they'll say, ah, you're okay. You're solid. You. You're solid. Uh, there's also other ways that um, you may be led into a team by an informant. Mm. An informant has maybe got a huge warrant outstanding um, and... The, the commanders have pulled in a favour and said, we want you to take this guy and tell him he's a mate. Mm. And you'd maybe work with him for three, four, five months and then eventually he'll pull away and I'll have been accepted. But one of the jobs, one of the major jobs um, was they wanted somebody to infiltrate a community. Mm. Uh, and by doing that, we had to put a body in and they would have to work in a local factory mm. and work their own way around the community without any introductions. So I was asked to be the handler for the, the young undercover that was going to do it. Um, so we set up an apartment, a flat in the area. Uh, it was wired for sound and vision, mm. and cameras and his car, everything. So it was all good to go. Uh, the first night it went live, uh, he phoned me at four in the morning. He was in a bit of bother. He had get drunk and obviously had mouthed off. He'd been in too heavy and the locals kicked seven colours of, out of him. Mm. and uh, we had to take him to hospital and he became a hazard we, we just couldn't keep him on the in. job so there was so much money spent on it um, they looked at his handler yours truly and said David do you fancy it? Mm. Adrenaline <laughs> I'll take some of that and yeah. that was us so you infiltrate this this gang or this organisation how would they vet their people? So you describe this process if it's the guy that knows the guy that knows the guy. Do, yeah. they, do they run any background checks? Do they have people within the police themselves? Well, funny you're asking that. I'll, I'll go into that. Yes, they do. Um, there are certain people who maybe pull a favour in, but they don't realise right. what they favour. The cops don't realise what the favour is they're giving out. Yeah. Um, on this particular occasion, uh, I had to network myself. 
and I was worked in a factory as a labourer. Hmm. And that I was sweeping the floors and just I was a dog's body. I was the lowest of low. Um, but I was slightly older than the rest of the people that were there. And my argument too was, I'm going to make this work. How do I make it work? And they used to play cards uh, uh, during their dinner break in the canteen. And you were never allowed to play unless you'd been with the company for 10 years. And it was all old timers and mm-hmm. you know, the, the old school. And I thought, that's my first infiltration. I'm going to get into these guys for a game of cards. Mm-hmm. And when I do that, then they'll start talking to me. So I pulled up a chair and... There was, you know, who do you think you are? Not so many words. <laughs> I says, eh, I'm Dave from Scotland. I'm about to give my cards. And I was told where to go. And I persisted. And they all laughed. Yeah. And, you know, you're, you sweep the floors. We're all tradesmen here. I really don't care. And yeah. eventually, cut a long story short, I stuck it out and I got an invite to play cards. And then I got an invite to their local pubs on a Friday night when we finished. And then from there, I would say, I smoke hash at the weekend. Hmm. Anyway, Aye, okay, I'll t- see him over there in the corner. And I bought my first piece of hash, and then that was me. The door had opened, mm. and I literally went through the whole community from buying a piece of hash to kilos of cannabis mm. to heroin, uh, shotguns, and it was over a period of six, seven months, and it was just networking. Mm. But during that process, um, I had to associate. In the morning, I would go to the local shops for a paper. Lunchtime, I'd be in the bookies, Mid-afternoon, I'd be in the pub. Um, nighttime, back to my flat to have a kip, sober up, back out again at night, local pub, start networking again. And then I bought a car and it just went from there and it was just everything I touched turned to gold. Yeah, yeah. So you just slowly built that f- sort of fake life up Absolutely. over time. And how was that? So you have almost this split in terms of your personality. You have the personality when you're with the gang but then you also need to go home and you need to decompress and you also uh, need to understand that you need to relay everything to the to the police yep how did you how did that work because you're firing so quickly in both pistons you make one mistake and it's deadly yeah and then you go home and you're silent yep I was fortunate that Tim, my my wife, was an intelligence officer in a special branch, so mm. she knew the work I was on, and she would be able to pick up the signs. Um, there was a process, there, there was a process in place. It all have changed now. Um, you had to clean yourself when you came out of the the job, and where I was working, particularly I was working, they had rented a farmhouse mm. about fifty miles out of town, and I would take the UC car there. All my clothes as David were in the house, my jewellery, my watches. I would go in, I would strip off the clothes I had, put it into a polythene bag because I didn't want to lose the scent mm. because that, that is a big thing. If you're, if you're clean in some of these environments, mm. they'll pick up, you know, you're a clean living guy, shower every day, you wear the same shirt for three, four days in some of the environments I was in. Mm. So I would go into a poly bag, I would be showered, shaved, into my outfit and then into the, my clean car and drive home and I would meet my wife etc and during that journey of maybe two and a half hours you debriefed yourself you talked about it I spoke to my handler on the phone um, and by the time I got home I was ready for a pint and a curry Hmm. I was back to being the David Uh, and then two or three days later I had to psych myself up again and go back in to be the UC and the drive down back to the farm into the farm, clothes on, into the UC car, 
and back onto the, the plot mm. and become the guy. And you had to tell them that you were down in London seeing some old mates because I couldn't tell them that I was going back up to Scotland Aye. to see my family. So you had to always be on your toes that what you told them last, but it was like watching a video mm. because as soon as you get your dirty clothes on, you went back into it and your mind slipped back into it. It's a mindset back into being that. But we need to remember as well, it's a huge adrenaline rush. It is a huge buzz. Um, and you know that you're foolproof in everything that you're you're doing because all the, the I's are dotted, the T's are dotted, the paperwork's dotted, my handler, everything is done at perfection. Mm. And did you go, was there ever a situation that you went uh, into that gang and you were made to do something that skewed that moral compass? For example, is there initiation in terms of, oh, we need to take drugs at the moment, do it? Yep, um, yep. Uh, and that is also part of your training and part of the psychrometric testing. Um, my bag was when I was going to, they used to have blue parties and they would bring them in prostitutes and they, they would have lines of coke in the table and mm. it just it was like something out of a movie. And I would go in and the first thing they would offer you would be a couple of lines. I'm a Scots guy, I drink whiskey. Give me a bottle of whiskey. I don't touch it. Drugs are for mugs. I'm there to make money. I'm there to sell it. Mm. And that was my get out. If it had really come to the crunch, I would have probably had to do a couple of lines. But I would need mm. to have let my manager or my handler know that, okay, I've stepped over the boundary here. And this is the reason being is my life was in position or the credibility of the whole operation was position. Aye. You do get a get out of jail card. There's certain things you can do. One of them was you're not allowed to drink and drive. Mm. Um, there's other things I can buy drugs, I can buy firearms because that's part of my remit. So, so, so that was that's interesting. So you had, in essence, the police would whitelist you. Yeah. Well, the only one that whitelisted me would be my handler in the location that I was in. There was no other officer in that force knew that was an undercover operative working in the area, which leads me on to the question you asked me earlier: Would do the criminals screen people and do they mm. put their own team through it? Um, there was a particular uh, gymnasium in one of the areas I was working in and the guy was dealing in ecstasy and mm. they knew he was dealing in ecstasy but they just could never catch him. They tried every method of uh, policing. They tried warrants, they tried surveillance, they tried tapping telephone and it wasn't working and they decided we need somebody to infiltrate it. But fortunately, the gymnasium that he ran was right next door to my apartment in the flat that I had rented and I wasn't really into a lot of training. I do a lot of running but I wasn't into weights as in bodybuilding and he showed my face and the guy had seen me coming in and out in the car a couple of times and just spent time, hi how are you doing and I went in and he was a jack of, he was a, a Del Trotter out of Only Fools and Horses. He would buy and sell anything that moved but he was also a bodybuilder and he had copious amounts of clients. I said, this guy would love a deal. He would love to take something and show off to everybody that he's Jack the Lad. So I went back to my handler and says, look, this guy is uh, a bit of a bobber and weaver. He is dealing. I don't know how he's doing it. I can't get close to him, but I need something to give me credibility and to make mm. him feel as if he's a top jolly banana. And he said, what do you want? I says, buy me whiskey. Buy me crates of whiskey. And I'll tell him that I had blagged a, a whiskey truck up in Scotland we'd done an armed robbery on it and this is my takes of it so we bought a couple of hundred crates police paid for it 
and I went in with the bottles of whiskey and said, do you know how many we take these? And he said, what's the story behind them? I said, well, you don't need the story. I says, I got them off a truck in mm. Scotland. That's all you need to know. Yeah, I'll take a couple. So he took a couple and he started selling them to his pointers. And his credibility again was, oh, you know, see this guy, he'll get you something. So I must have sold about 500 bottles of whiskey through him. And I became the top jolly banana. And he was saying, can you get anything else? So he was hooked. Um, and then I went to my handler and I says, look, I need something else. We've almost got him. He's on a hook. My handler came back and said, eh, we've got a contact. We can get Pringle jumpers. Would you be interested? And I said, well, the area I'm in, I says, they'll go down well. Mm. So we got about 500 Pringle jumpers. And I sold them at five or a pop to this guy. And he was selling about 25 quid. And he was doing okay. <laughs> Ironically, everybody in the area that I worked in as a UC were all wearing Pringle jumpers. <laughs> Nothing else, no other good clothes, but they're a good Pringle jumper. And he took to me. Hmm. And I started using his gym and he started showing me some things and we had a good bond. And any time I was in a car, he would wave and come over and how are you and different things. And eventually the, the, we decided, right, we need a tester with this guy. And I brought another UC in to help me. It was a London boy. And uh, I said, my mate's up for London. I said, we're going out tonight for a few pubs. I says, do you know him that can sort us out for mm. something that'll lift us? What, what are you talking about? And the London boy spoke up and says, look, looking for a couple of exercises, just for keep us going all night. I maybe know somebody come back in an hour, and went back in an hour, and lo and behold, there's a small parcel. Mm. And we bought a couple of ecstasy. So we built it up and built it up, and eventually we took over a thousand ecstasy off him. Uh, they call it a parcel aye we took a parcel of him within about three and a half months and uh, that was him aye signed, sealed and delivered and I'd move on to another target and take something else on but sorry your question there was was there ever been compromised he had a cop coming in to mm. the gym and he was very close to the cop not that the cop was bent but he spoke to the cop and said there's a, a guy a Scots guy in here he says, I just want to test him out. He says, I'm not sure about him. And the cop says, well, what do you want? And he says, he drives a fancy car. I was driving an old uh, 2.8 Gear X. Oh, the car was phenomenal, but it was all wired for sound. It had all the equipment in it, videos and everything. Mm. And uh, the cop checked the car out. But the registration of the car that I was using was flagged. And the only, when I say flagged, it's mm. marked on the computer that if this vehicle's checked then a certain person has to be contacted covertly and a certain person was my handler mm. and I arrived on the Monday I'd been away the weekend back up home and uh, the handler called me in and said hey, we need to meet and we had a certain location we met at and he says where were you on Sunday afternoon I said we're back home where was the UC car I said it was laid down at the farm ok he says why he says no just curious just leave it at that he says but just watch your back he says uh, hmm. the local cops are now sniffing about you which we knew would happen anyway yeah yeah. but he never told me that this cop had checked the car out and had went back to the, the guy in the gymnasium and told him he's a tasty geezer just stay away from him hmm. because my handler had went round to the cop in uniform and said you checked a car out last Sunday what was the story he said oh I seen it driving down the main street in such and such a place and I just wanted to know who it was that was driving it. So my handler then told this cop, he says, stay away from him. He's mm. an armed robber. We're looking at him. Just stay away from him. Mm. Of course, the cop took that and went back to the guy in the gymnasium. 
and the guy in the gymnasium says, Woof, that's yeah. good, tasty geezer. So he then hooks up with me even more. But on that note, the guy came to the flat, the gymnasium guy came to the flat, and they came in and says, You're a cop. Mm. Of course, you can imagine. I didn't know that mm. what he'd been told. I said, if you say that to me again, you're going out that window. And he laughed. And he says, I'm only joking, Dave, I'm only joking. <laughs> he says, I checked you out. He says, I've got a palace in the, the old bill. And he says, you're a tasty geezer. Aye. How lucky was I? Did you have an anxiety rush when that Absolutely. Kind of, yeah. Um, if you ever try you go into a situation where you know you've done wrong and your Adam's apple's going up and down like a table tennis ball... <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by Chisholm Hunter. Now, Chisholm Hunter are a luxury diamond and watch specialist located throughout the UK. They have over 29 stores. They've been going for over 165 years. And to this day, they're still family run. If you're looking for your next luxury watch or your next piece of jewellery, head to chismhunter.co.uk. That's chismhunter.co.uk. And on that note, let's get back to it. So you mentioned their blue parties, was that? Yeah, um, these these were parties that the the, the major criminals, the, the older criminals, the, sort of, the godfathers would run, and it would be maybe on a Saturday night at some house, or they would rent somewhere, and they, they'd have copious amounts of drugs, hmm. and they would bring in the prostitutes, and you would go in and you asked me earlier, you know, what did you do if somebody offered you uh, a, coke a, a coke or whatever? Yeah. And my argument to that was, you know, I'm a whiskey man, Drugs are for mugs. I like my whiskey. So that was my get-out-of-jail card. And everybody would say, oh, the wee guy doesn't touch it. I said, and I like to keep my head clear. I like to know what I'm doing. And we always got a laugh at it. You know, why do you know what to do? Oh, you know. mm. um, and that's, and of course, there was obviously the prostitutes there as well. Yeah, yeah. So you, so you just didn't go near it? You just... Well, they were offered... T- t- it was actually quite funny. <laughs> I mean, they were offered to you in a plate. And some of them were very attractive, may I say. <laughs> um, and, of course, then you're saying, well, I'm going into another boundary here that I'm prohibited to do. Aye. And really nice, attractive-looking girls. And being a fairly active young man, you would think, you know... And my get-out was that I've told them I was gay. Right. And eventually it came out in conversation. I said, look, no, it's not for me. Aye. Of course, my next worry would be is if I go to another blue party and they turn up and they bring a couple of rent boys in, <laughs> then where'd they go from there? But fortunately, the operation was now becoming to an end. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, yeah. well, okay, I'm, I'm going to have time to get out of this one. So that was my argument to that. I just, yeah. I'd have been to a few of the parties and they would just say, but none of them suspected that, Christ, I never picked that one up. Yeah. yeah. And it was always a joke. So we Scotch poof. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm not. <laughs> and was there is there a way to to tell, or is there there a way that you were trained to uh, scout out a liar? It's a natural instinct, you know. Hmm. Even now, today, um, uh, many years down the line, I can go into a company and somebody will say, "You smell like a cop," and I'll laugh and say, "Why? Just see the way you hold yourself, you know, the way your attire." Um, some of the companies I work for will turn around and say, oh, you know you're an ex-cop. Well, we're the same. We can pick up. Um, my wife and I, if we go out to a night out in Glasgow, or if when we stayed in the city, we would go into uh, a pub and the two of us would automatically pick up, there's a deal going down. Mm-hmm. Or look at that over there. He's old and it's just, a, it's, it's an instinct. I suppose because you've lived it as you've well. You've lived it. You've lived it and people say, you know, my God, you two never give up. So, well, you know, it's like, in fact, there was a programme the other night on the television, and it was a, a top London restaurant, and they were converting it, and they were speaking to the general manager. 
and he said when he walks into the restaurant he can pick up when a knife and a fork is not in the right place because mm. you've been doing it for so long mm. he says very small intricate details I pick up he says and that's because I've been doing it well I would flip that over to my wife and I we've been doing it for so long you've seen things happening you've, you just the body language you call it a rabbit's tail you yeah. see it, it's just an instinct yeah and you described this process of kind of your handler would give you a white sorry, uh, you'd be whitelisted so to speak so that if you got into trouble your, your handler would be would know about it is there any ever any points that you got into trouble and arrested by cops that essentially didn't know that you were an undercover cop yeah nobody in any of the force areas you worked in knew you were there because it was a risk to you and it was also a risk to the operation because a lot of money was put into it mm. Um, typical example was I had purchased a son-off shotgun and my handler was out of town and I thought, what am I going to do with the son-off shotgun? So I just left it in the back of the car, in the boot of the car. And I was travelling from, uh, I was going back to the safe house, um, I was going away for the weekend, uh, actually going down to London, and I parked the safe car, knew it was secure, everything was fine, the son-off shotgun and, and some to put up the, uh, some bullets to put up the spout. Um, fine it was okay there and on my way back the weekend I went into the house got on my dirty clothes got into the car completely forgetting there's a son of shotgun in the back of the car <laughs> and I must have been doing about 95 up the motorway the one blue lighter mm. oh, I'm going to get done here cop gets out do you know what speed you were doing I said I've just I was giving it a clear out it's been lying in the garage for a couple of weeks I said I humbly apologise now I've got a leather jacket on I've got tattoos got a beard I look like I've just fallen out the back of a, a hedge mm. and he, he looked at my tax disc he said you know your tax disc's out of date by five days I went oh you're having a laugh he said no he says on this occasion and then he walked around the car checked my tyres and says right took my details he says okay on your way there's a son of shotgun in the boot you know that's not good policing that's yeah. if if in my day, if somebody like that looking like me doing 95 mile an hour, 85 mile an hour with a tax that's out of date, that's an excuse to turn that car upside down. Mm-hmm. And later on, at the end of the operation, the cop was chastised by his senior management that he missed an opportunity yeah. to, to tug somebody. Your question is, if I was arrested, there was a game plan that there was a particular solicitor I would ask for and he would be contacted and then he would contact my handler right. and, and if if it would compromise the operation that I had to go to a jail or be remanded then so be it mm. but, um, I've done a night in the cells uh, I've done an undercover night in the cells to find out they put me in my guy that had committed a murder and we wanted to find out if he would talk but he wasn't up for it he didn't know me it was just I was another criminal that was locked up and mm. he just said he was in trumped up charges did you ever get any points that you spend a lot of time with these guys, these this kind of gang, and you might have spent years, in essence, with some of these people? Is there ever any point that you actually got quite close to these people and thought, "Shit, I'm going to have to put you away"? Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, that's that's literally. And for any of your, your viewers who don't know what the Stockholm syndrome is, Stockholm syndrome was a, a female called Paddy Hurst, hmm. and she was kidnapped by terrorists, and. Exactly as you've said, she started to sympathise with the cause and she became one of the terrorists and the rest is history. Stockholm Syndrome is part of your training um, and what I will say is probably come to you as a shock. I liked some of the guys. 
I bought drugs off and I bought guns off. They were likeable characters. Um, you don't put a badge on somebody and say, you're a criminal and you're a bad person. They're a bad person because they chose that walk of life. Mm. But deep down, they've got families, they've got kids. Uh, I'd been to a christening on in, in one particular occasion. One of the guys, uh, there was one junkie took me in to meet his parents. He was never born a junkie, came from a good home. You do sympathise, but there's still that trigger in the back of your mind that you've got to say, I'm a cop. You know, mm. The main job that we're talking about just now, there was 19 deaths uh, over a period of six months due to bad heroin in the streets, and they couldn't get who it was, so they needed somebody to go in and buy heroin, copious amounts of it, and it was my job. And we identified who the dealer was, and we took out numerous, numerous dealers, but it's like a vacuum. As soon as one door shuts, somebody else jumps into it yeah. and takes it on. You'll never, in society now, will never get rid of it. What was the risk? So the the risk in terms of being caught, would they kill you? It's something I never thought of. I, I thought of escape routes and how I could get out of it. And I would flash back to my, my younger days and um, when I ran about with the boys in the gorbals and they were getting caught. I was a fast runner right. um, and I always had an exit plan. Um, it's something that you can't think about mm. because if you think about it it mars your judgement and it takes you outside of the bubble that you're actually in mm. because you're looking back at reality and thinking that these guys know I'm a cop so as soon as I stepped into my car turned the keys and headed back to where I was doing my UC work I was a UC I was a criminal but, but did you were you afraid Is at any point were you afraid or were you so invested in, in character that you just didn't get that that kind of fear and anxiety of being because because essentially if they found out that you were who you were, knowing what you did, that's a pretty big. The the biggest worry now, eh, Harrison, is that um, they know now that the guy who was in front of them all these years ago was an undercover, and they all spent a lot of time in prison. The worry now is if they ever decided to come out and look for me. Um, but I try not to think about that because I've moved on in life. I have changed so much since these years when I had a full head of hair and mm. I was young and vibrant and I could run a marathon. Um, it's something that we try not to think about or discuss. But it is, it's a reality that it's there. Yeah. And it's something you've got to live with. But life has to go on and mortgage has to get paid. And um, In fact, on that note, it's sort of probably more appropriate to bring it in now uh, a funny story was we, my wife and I were in the Santa Ponza in Mallorca many many years ago and we heard a, a voice calling out my name and it's when I was in the CID and it was my real name it wasn't a pseudonym that I was using and you think to yourself and it was my surname they used and I thought nobody calls you mister and I turned around and there was a guy sitting in this bar in Santa Ponza and I said to my wife, that's so-and-so. She says, okay, right, is it a problem? I says, no, no. Now, bearing in mind, I wasn't undercover. I was a detective prior, hmm. at, up to this point. Cut a long story short, I went up, and I'd done the guy for an armed robbery, hmm. and he got 10 years. At that time, we knew he was involved in at least another nine or 10 armed robberies. But when we caught him, I was arresting officer, I was interviewing officer, and as I said to you earlier on in the, the, the discussion, Treat them the way you, they want to be treated, you know. They're criminals, it's shotgun, you don't need to lay it down, he knows what he's done. Mm. And on this occasion, he was caught red-handed. Um, 
Didn't hold his hands up, went to trial, and he got 10 years. Good result for us, but we never got him for the other ones. So he was saying, you want a beer? I said, Aye, why not? I says, you were okay with me, and hopefully I was okay with you. And he said, well, you gave me a fair deal. He says, that's why I'm buying you a pint. Mm. So we laughed, we joked, and of course, three or four pints down the line, um, he was saying, what are you doing yourself now? I said, oh, just bobbing and weaving. I says, what about you? He said, oh, he says, I'm away from it all now. So we had another couple of beers. And I said, what are you doing over here? He says, I'm on holiday. He says, I'm, I'm over at my house. I says, oh, you're doing well. He says, aye, he says, see the other nine that you never <laughs> locked me up for? He says, I've got two apartments over here. Oh, my God. And they laughed. Yeah. And we shook hands. And uh, I, I still see him now and again and what I'm doing in the city. Yeah. And, uh, and I thought, you know, that's a command of respect. I gave him the respect that he was due and sat with him, with his family mm. and with my wife and made a few beers and we shot the breeze and told some stories. Aye, aye. And that, that, when you do things like that, you think, life's not that bad. And people change. They do. I, I think that the thing is, every, I think it's, the statistic is seven to eight years, people uh, take a total U-turn and do something totally different. Totally. Um, and, and that's kind of the lifespan of businesses in essence. Yep. Normally, yep. it's eight years to 10 years and then they float the company because they want a change. Absolutely. It's the same with yeah. everyone. Yeah. And I think people people do change. You said something quite interesting there. You said, we didn't know he'd been, you didn't get caught for the other nine, ten he did. Yeah. Is that quite common within policing that you know that somebody's oh. done something? However, you just can't catch them. Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. 100%. Um, many, many, many years ago when I was a very young detective, um, he would have got the other nine because that was just a way of life. He would have, evidence would have been found some way. And I'll put that in inverted commas. That was a type of policing that was going on all these years ago. And mm. there's cases to prove it. Um, but the service changed. And at that time, I was in the Scottish Crime Squad. And uh, if you get somebody buying to rights, why spoil it? Mm. Why fit them up? Or that's, that's the word they use. Why fit them up or do something naughty? We've got the guy, you get 10 years... If he'd get another, if we had fitted him up for the other nine, which we would never have done, but if we had, he'd have probably got another three or four years on top of it. Hmm. Or we would have compromised the whole case and lost everything. So it's not worth the risk. Not worth it. And he knew himself that he wasn't. He, he knew himself he was getting a good deal. He was caught red-handed. Bob's your auntie, hmm. and lo and behold, he bought me a pint. So <laughs> several, <laughs> several. <laughs> and in within the police force. You described these godfathers, so to speak, that the heads yep. of the the, yep. the the families. Do they have? And, and this might be me watching too many movies. Do they have police on their payroll? In Scotland, no. And when you say payroll, uh, it was favours. I, I witnessed a lot of it in the Met um, when I worked down there. Um, I wouldn't say I seen money exchange hands. I wouldn't say uh, favours, but some of the favours that were paid um, for turning a blind eye where they maybe give you somebody else down the pecking order. Mm. So if they were bringing in, for example, uh, just an example, if they were bringing in 10 kilo of heroin um, and they knew that we were getting close to them, they would probably tell you that Joe Thompson down the street is expecting a kilo of heroin tomorrow. Mm. But they wouldn't tell you that he was getting the nine of it. And that he was, and that was a sort of way. The Met was a, a different force way back when I was a young cop down there doing the, doing the stuff um, there were things going on and but again everywhere you go there's mm. there's always a bad apple 
that, that's what I don't really get about crime families. Their loyalties are so skewed because anyone's in the firing line. If you're not the boss, you're in the firing line. Absolutely. And is that kind of the way it works? You have the godfather, yep. in essence, the head of the family. And then anyone below them, if they get too close to the godfather, they just start picking them off. Yep. If, if they become a threat, and that's well, uh, I'm going to probably, maybe you're a wee bit young to remember the Arthur Thompson. I need to quickly pause this podcast and ask a massive favour from you guys. If you have ever taken any value from the Into the Mind podcast, if you ever enjoyed the content that we produce, then please consider hitting that subscribe button, giving us a five stars or whatever it might be on whatever social platform it is. It would really be appreciated and it helps us so much more than you know. Yeah, that, um, Arthur Thompson was a, 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 the godfather of the north of Glasgow. In fact, he was the godfather of Glasgow. But some of his um, juniors were beginning to stick their head above the parapet. And there was a huge, huge split. Paul Ferris was one of them. Um, the, the licensee, uh, Tam McGraw, was another one. These were all his right-hand men. And they all started to move off and start their own empire. And then it became a major gang problem in Glasgow yeah. where Arthur Thompson's son was uh, shot by, well, Paul Ferris was a suspect for it, stood trial and was never ever found guilty on it. Yeah. Um, and then subsequently the two people that were in the car with Paul Ferris on the night um, were mysteriously murdered and left mm-hmm. outside their pub, the gang pub in the East End of Glasgow. So, you know, that that was all going on and there was always people saying, no, they had cops because uh, McGraw was never getting to jail. Tam McGraw never got to jail. They called him uh, the informant. But it was never ever proved that he was giving information to the police or that the police were taking anything from him. There was always allegations, but you get it everywhere. So it is very much like, and I hate to reference a movie here, but it is very much like The Godfather in terms of the the lower ones get picked off. Absolutely. And... and essentially you just keep recruiting the lower ones and keep picking them off and the guy at the top reaps all the benefits he's got his donkeys that are out there doing it for him and ironically the donkeys become resources and they realise you know there's more to this here and they try to start moving up the pecking order and if they become a threat then that's when they're knocked off off or they're kicked out uh, their money's taken from them or you know you don't do that anymore and then that's when they split into separate gangs, separate mm. teams, and that's why you've got it in Glasgow now, because you've got major criminals, the families, the Daniels and the Lions and all that, everybody knows about them, they're in the papers, and they all could have worked together at one point, but uh, unfortunately... Too greedy. Too greedy, mm-hmm. yep. And what is the, I know you, you have some absolutely crazy stories, and there's one in particular that you mentioned in your book, uh, the Bengal Tiger story. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bearing in mind, most of the stories are all within this area in uh, northeast England. And I had been into uh, a couple of cannabis dealers, just small stuff. And one of the dealers had said to me that um, there's a thing called a soap bar, they call it. And it's like a a nine-ounce bar of cannabis. And the dealers get it and they cut it up into split it up into different pieces. They said, if you go round to this guy's house, I said, wait a minute, the guy doesn't know me. Hmm. You'll be fine. Go round to his house. Tell him who you are and tell him my name. He says, and he'll sort you out. And I said, but I'm only looking for a couple of deals. Hmm. You'll get your soap bar. He says, and that'll tie you over and you can pay him back. So lo and behold, I go around to this house and it's like something out of film. It's in black and white, tenement building. Go up the stairs. Now, bear in mind, I'm wearing a mic and I've got a, a, 
microphone down the front of my uh, trousers and my pants. Get to the door, introduce myself. The guy looks at me, covered in tattoos, come in. So I've stepped over the threshold. He doesn't know me, but he's trust me because I've mentioned a name. Mm. Takes me into the living room, sits down and says, um, my gear's not arrived yet, it'll be here in 20 minutes, half an hour. You okay to sit? Okay. I'll shoot the breeze because I know enough people in the local area that I can reference in that yeah. I go to him and I've done this and I do this and I've done that and that's a pub I drink in. And so I'm, I'm reasonably comfortable until this Bengal tiger, an Alsatian the size of a Bengal tiger, comes out of the kitchen and comes over to me. Now, I've got dogs, I had dogs. Um, I'm not scared of them. I was never scared of them. And the police, if you're going to get bitten, you're going to get bitten. And this thing has got a head the size of a lion. I kid you not. Mm good dogs dealers watchdog lovely big thing comes over and I grab its ears and I'm playing with it and then the next thing its head starts to tilt and it starts to look at my crutch oh my god and I'm thinking he hears my tape running and literally the guy was talking to me and I couldn't have told you if he was talking to me in Swahili Gaelic Mm. Welsh I wasn't hearing him I was concentrating on this dog and I had to hold it by the ears and play with it, move its head about as if I was rubbing its ears, and its nose was getting closer and closer to my crutch. And the guy says, you get something in your pocket for the dog? I says, no, nah. I says, my ma's dog from Glasgow, that's what it'll smell, it's a bitch, it's been up my knee probably, he probably went to screw me, and he <laughs> laughed, and I thought, well, I've got him on side, but what is this thing going to do? Aye. 22 minutes I sat, and later on at the end of the, the operation, the guys who were listening to my tape being transcribed knew Aye. that my tone had changed and that my personality was changing and my voice was changing and they thought, there's something not right. And then when I started referring to the dog, they began to realise that I've got a dog with its nose in my crutch hmm. listening to my tape going round and round because a dog's hearing's yeah, 30, 40 time, times better. Cut a long story short, I have never been so pleased to take it out of the house. <laughs> the gear came in, I bought the gear, the dog followed me to the door, and the guy says, well, I think my dog loves you. I says, well, I love your dog. And then when I get out and I was going down the stairs, I talked into the tape, and I said, I have never been so close to getting caught out. Mm-hmm. Never. And it was a lesson that we, I, later on, when I was doing training with other undercovers, spoke to him about, be aware if there's animals in the house and whatever. But that was probably the closest I thought, I'm going to get done here. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I get through it. And it's not something you'd expect. I think that uh, you just don't. You do so much training around these gangs. Why would you train for a dog? Well, funny <laughs> enough, when the, at the end of it, and we had a debrief, and we were back. And I was back down at the Met. We put it into the training course. Yeah. For future UCs to be aware that this is something that you'll come across. Mm. A learning curve, but hey. Yeah. And that's the most sort of terrifying <clears throat> instance in terms of. The, the closeness to being caught. Have you had any other instances on these operations or undercover that you would describe as, you know, particularly traumatic or, or pretty horrible? I, probably, in all fairness, Harrison, there, there has been, but nothing that's triggered off other than the guy coming mm. up and telling me that you were a cop and then realising that a cop had actually checked me out and if it hadn't been for my handler um, and the one with the dog, there's been situations you've been in and there's been fights who broke out you know, you've got to, and you're wearing equipment and you're thinking, you know, if I get involved in a fight here and somebody rips my shirt off and I've got a wire underneath it, you're screwed. I'm screwed. 
you know, and there's a, the, the the technology has changed so much now. When I was doing that, it was a wire and you had a small, I think it was a Niagara they called it. It was a tape recorder. It was a, the size of a fag packet. Mm. Um, looking back now, you think, you know, you put yourself into some situations, but why would I be caught out? Because I'm, I'm getting into these guys' houses, I'm opening the front door and I'm shouting in. Mm. I know the local lingo to get me over the threshold because I've been there. The only way it would be is if there's a drugs burst and the drug squad walk in, and that was my next worry, is being apprehended or been fitted up by the local drug squad because I've been doing so much. Hmm. Um, and there was a particular detective sergeant who was out to get me, and my handler knew because they were now creating a file on you on me. And the argument to that was, well, what do we do? And that's when we put in the, the emergency exit plan, either a leg it or um, I, I, I go the whole hog and I get locked up and I see the solicitor and right. we take it let it do his natural course but towards the end of the operation I was getting tired and that's when my health started to go down this this major operation because I've been doing other things for so long mm. and I thought you know I, I didn't see it and working back to the mindset the mindset of everything I've done is always I've been in control because I know what I wanted to do I wanted to be that young cop I wanted to get the adrenaline rush we had a, a, a discussion before we came in and you had said you know your lifespan in doing something is for six seven years hmm. you're absolutely right your concentration and your level in any walk of life and in any business you have to change or you become that person on a conveyor belt doing the same job for the hmm. next 25 years hmm. or the next 30 years and that's when I when I do motivational speaking and I speak to people and say you know there's more to you you should be trying this you should be trying that and that's exactly what I'd done throughout my police service. I had uh, m- one of my bosses used to say, you've got the concentration span of a budgie. <laughs> and I would say, what do you mean by that? He says, you'll do something for four or five years. He says, and then you'll throw it away. You're, you're dead and you want to do something else. And he's absolutely right. Do you think it was <clears throat> partially to do with that adrenaline? So after four or five years, you, you, you've, you kind of know the script it's not giving you that adrenaline buzz anymore that it used to. You want something different. I couldn't describe it any other way. You're absolutely right. It's you literally do it, you master it, you learn it, you master it, you conquer it, and you think, I've been here, I've done it. Mm-hmm. What next? I'm bored now. And I think that's laterally um, when my health started to deteriorate and um, I, I went the other way towards the end of my career in the police. Um, I began to realise what more could I do as a, a police officer. I'd um, been in the drug squad, I'd done rural surveillance, I'd done firearms, um, I'd done uh, motorbike surveillance, uh, everything within the crime squad and they handed me this in a plate and it's a, it's a, a young cop or an older cop's dream mm. to be told you're going to live as a criminal for the next X amount of years and we're going to tell you how to do it and you're going to be good at it. And I've done it. Mm. But to the detriment of my health at the latter end because I was so much living in adrenaline. Um, I was running out of adrenaline and I started to top myself up with Smirnoff and Smirnoff mm. became my adrenaline. Um, and as I say, to the detriment of it. And that was the mindset that changed everything because you think, I've done all this and I'm subsequently, I'm, I'm getting let down. Hmm. And you see you see that a lot in the army and the military, especially amongst SAS, Navy SEALs, and these highly operational people. They are so in tuned to their environment because if they make one mistake, 
Absolutely. That's it. And what happens is when they go home or when they, you know, aren't on tour, normal problems that are so mundane to them. Totally. They just can't handle it. And a lot of them go into extreme sports yep. afterwards because they need that endorphin yep. rush. And I think that a lot of them, what has been described to me is when you're in the field, the only thing that you have to think about is knocking down that next door and, or in your case, camouflage my identity, yeah. get this criminal, camouflage the That's the only thing you've got to think about. Yeah. But when you come home to reality, mortgage, bills, taxes, that's when it starts to really bubble away. Do you think that's yeah. kind of what happened? You, you made a valid point there that something becomes very mundane. The, the catalyst for me going over the edge was when I came back from doing a, a major operation, and I came back into the, the Scottish Crime Squad and we were going out in a job and a young sergeant had been shouting, we've lost a battery, you know, get your finger out for Christ's sake, we've lost this battery, where is it? And I'm looking at him and saying, you've no idea what I've just done. Mm. Now bearing in mind, my mindset's slightly different from what the real Dave was. And I thought, you're an absolute mm. nutter. You've lost a battery. And I literally, I gave my mouth full and I, I, I cracked. And that's when I realised... You know exactly as you've said my adrenaline rush is gone mm -hmm. you know and to top up my adrenaline rush i i would go we had covert offices over in paisley i would go to the airport at lunchtime i would take the motorbike out because you've got to keep your road craft up if you're doing surveillance and motorbikes and mm. you go out and you push yourself you're up to loch lomond and you go around the country roads throwing yourself into it and i was doing that but i wasn't going to rush out it mm. I was flatlining, I was riding a motorbike up Loch Lomond, 9,500 mile an hour going round bends, and I wasn't going to rush out it, so I'd come back, and I'd go and get a couple of vodkas at the airport, and I'd top myself up, and I got a wee bit of a rush, adrenaline, my sense of humour would come back, the real Dave would come back, and then they'd do it more, and then before I knew, I was actually doing it all the time, but I didn't realise it, um, and my adrenaline rush was becoming a liquid, Mm. Um, and then I'd go into a UC job and I would drink more um, I would do more outrageous things when I was out with some of the criminals as a sense of humour and have a laugh and in particular when I came home I had a certain incident one night I was out with my wife and uh, a guy overtook us on a country road we stayed uh, up north further up north and I um, my wife flashed him and he pumped the brake lights and stopped and of course I, get out, I was in the passenger seat I got out and I pulled the guy out of the car and I was going to leather him. Mm. Totally out of character. And I looked and there was a young kid sitting in the front seat. And then I realised, this is not right. And at that point, my wife, who, as I said, was a, an intelligence officer in a special branch, she says, you'll need help. Right. And what, what kind of help do you get when you're doing the, these operations? Uh, do you get therapy? or? Well, um, that was... Leading on to the next chapter of, of the life, um, every time I would do a UC job, um, any UCs I worked with uh, jointly, when the job finished, they would go and be debriefed by a, a psychologist or psychiatrist mm. and just to check that they're online and everything's okay with you and whatever. All the years I'd done it, I'd never seen anything because you were, I think because we're the Scottish... Um, mentality was, you know, we're, we wear kilts, we're right. tough, we're roughy, toughy guys. We don't do that sort of thing. And the senior management never put anything in place. And of course, now and again, and I knew that I just wanted to talk to somebody because you become sometimes very emotional if you're watching a programme on the telly. Hmm. And I was becoming more emotional than normal. And it wasn't right. 
and uh, I asked to numerous occasions listen to any chance of setting something up if I'd like to see something I feel I need to do it don't worry about it you're fine you know okay we'll get it sorted and then ultimately on that night in question with the car um, my wife and I had words in the house and it was an ultimatum pull yourself together so I phoned in sick uh, on the Monday morning no I didn't phone in sick I went to all. I just took the bike I had my own motorbike took my motorbike out and went round all the country roads we stayed up in the Highlands and uh, my wife phoned in, got a phone call at a uh, special branch to say Dave's not turned up. She said, right, okay. So she made a few phone calls, couldn't get me. And uh, the balloon went up and I came back to the house, bottle of whiskey, blacked out. My good lady came in, he's here, he's safe. And thereafter I was uh, sent to go and see the police surgeon, uh, the chief medical officer, and he was absolutely... I guess, didn't know I existed, didn't know that type of work went on in Scotland or in Britain, nobody kept him in the loop. And he said, uh, go off sick, which I had done, and he then said, we'll get something in place for you. And from that day on, all the senior management took 40 steps back, and I just dealt with the, the police uh, chief medical officer who was fantastic mm. supported me got me psychological support um, got myself clean uh, took up running really get rebuilt my life I got my mindset back to say okay you've been kicked down I licked my wounds the wee puppy's been hurt um, but I've got a nice home I've got a good wife good kids and I rebuilt it mm. and do you, do you think that do you drink now? Yeah, I drink now. I can control my drink now. Aye, because I, th- I think a, a lot of people, especially that I've spoken to that have kind of addictive personalities or addictive issues, that it can go either way. Sometimes sometimes you just cut it out and it's gone. And yeah. if you have one drink, that leads to the next. You can't do it. But others, they can kind of control it. But yeah. normally the control aspect comes with psychological help yeah. because they've dealt with the root of the issue. That's exactly it. People that... Uh, have a drinking problem <clears throat> cut out alcohol overall they've not got to the root of the problem because if they have one drink that's them Aye. Yep. so do you think that you've you've, yep. you've solved that totally yeah. um, the the biggest debrief for me was I got the psycho- psychological help um, to identify that the problem was and my handler in one of the major operations had said that um, which we can probably wind back to later that uh, the local press he knew the, the editor would like to do a, an interview covert interview with you mm. and the type of work that you'd done and the apprehensions and the commendations etc would you build for it and I said well if she's if you know her and she's a covert and she'll keep my name mm. but she'll tell the story I says I'm absolutely not a problem and I spoke to her and actually she was a Scottish uh, she worked for Scotland and Sunday uh, Scotland and Sunday yep and at the end of the conversation we had, she says, you ever thought about doing a book? And, you know, born and bred in the gorbals. <laughs> yeah. Poor education, you know, I've done what I've done, achieved what I've done, learned as I've been going on. No, I've never thought about it. She says, do it. And I said, you know, I don't know I've got the, the grammar to do it. Do it. And spoke to my wife about it. And she says, why don't you dictate it? And mm. we'll get it typed up. Just as you're talking dictate it and we'll get it made up so we got a, a girl a secretary who typed up at night for us gave us a sheets had a hard copy and um, my wife edited it and checked it and went back to the girl that had interviewed me and says what do you think she says not a problem 
hmm. leave it with me. The next time I was approached by a publisher and they said, we're interested. And uh, I had to wait until uh, literally uh, the end of the litigation because uh, I, I never mentioned in the earlier that uh, I took the police to court hmm. um, for uh, lack of welfare, etc. However, the good news was that uh, two days before the trial, they settled out of court. It took me four years to get out of the system, but the best debrief for me was one, identifying what the problem was, and two, I put it on paper and yeah. I wrote a book about it, and I am completely debriefed. Yeah, yeah. And do you think that, yeah, uh, that the book, in essence, was your form of therapy in terms of revisiting those traumatic experiences, absolutely. writing about them, processing them, and actually dealing with that trauma? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it was a mindset. I was fortunate in. People are maybe less fortunate that don't have uh, these facilities to help them. But mm. my mindset, again, was I want to be a good cop. I want to be a detective. I want to be a firearms officer. And I, my mindset was I'm going to do this. And when I came out of this clean and done everything and I wrote the book and I said, you know, if I sell one copy, I don't care. Ah, it's more I've for me. It. It's, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and my family got a buzz out of it as well because my, my two daughters didn't know that their dad was doing this at a life. Oh, so just, you, you couldn't tell your daughters anything? Nobody in my family knew. Nobody knew. So who can you and can't you tell? Is it literally just, I suppose your wife is a little bit different because she was with, within the... Well, that, that, your comment there is an ex perfect uh, lead-in to when I was down for the interview and I was told, you know, um, this is a, a covert situation. Nobody but nobody will know. And they hammered this into you throughout the course, and this was the final interview, and it was uh, two commanders and somebody from the terrorist squad, and they were sitting, and they're really probing you and saying, you know, what would you do this, and what about this, and what about this? And I just answered from the heart and said, well, said, you know, there's no textbook answer other than if they like the answer you're giving them. And at the very end, um, one of the commanders leans forward, with a bit of pomp and circumstance, and said, mm. um, would you tell anybody? I said, I'd probably tell my wife. Now, knowing that that is, pff, you've just burst the bubble here, you've mm. just, you've sold yourself out of the job because you don't tell your wife because if you have a fall out with your wife further down the line, she goes to papers Aye. and she tells this and the next thing. And he said, so you would tell your wife? I thought, got you on the hook. And he, and he looks at the two other commanders and you would tell your wife? Absolutely. And why would you tell your wife? Would you trust her? I said, well, she's an intelligence officer in the special branch. Mm. I said, so obviously you guys trust her. Conversation ended. I got the job. Mm -hmm. Top jolly banana. And how, how was that in terms of keeping that from, I, I don't know what age your, your daughters were at that point, but keeping that kind of stuff from them? They just thought that I was, uh, they knew I was in the crime squad. They thought I was maybe away in an operation. I was down south working, maybe following a target yeah. to Spain or whatever we were doing. And uh, there was always an answer for them, you know, um, Dad will be away here. And, and it was just, we got away with it. We, again, that was another con yeah. that we had to do just to... Yeah. To, and it was to protect them as well. Yeah, yeah. Because I think if they really knew what we were getting up to, um, the girls were, I think, 13 and, 13 and 15. Yeah. You yeah. know, and they were going through their lifestyle and... Even now we laugh, and my oldest daughter, she'll say, you know, you weren't that good dad at your police work. She says, I was smoking hash for ages. <laughs> Denial's a great thing. I, I, I says, we knew. Yeah. How did you know? I says, well, what did we do? Chastise you? And then you say, oh, my dad's a drug squad guy and this and that. Yeah. And then you go into the harder stuff. I says, you were coming home 
fine. Aye. You grew out of it. Aye, aye, aye. So I now tell her son. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the family's kind of... It, again, this might be the movies, but do families get put as ri- at risk as well as the undercover cop? They, well, I was fortunate because I see my wife was in a special branch and she knew the ins and outs of it and she was obviously dealing with I, the IRA, the problems in the borders mm. and the intel. Um, I think probably when the bubble burst and I didn't get the support and I realised that everybody that was in the line with me going forward have taken five steps back and I was the only guy out there in the open mm. um, then you realise you know what if somebody catches on to me finds my address yeah, uh, my kids whatever and I really have to try and get reassurances but it's hard to get reassurances for people that you've worked with and they suddenly think you've let them down because you've stepped out of the inner circle and said I need help here mm. and you've went official on it and you've drawn attention to it and that's why some of the senior officers really took umbrage to it because I'd highlighted their inefficiencies hmm. for putting things like this in place. However, it's a good thing because now the network and support that operators have got and guys who are doing witness protection is second to none. Good. But it was to the detriment of my life laterally yeah. in the service. But hey, I've moved on. I've got a good life. Was there ever a temptation in terms of, and I've heard military guys speak about this before, that obviously there's a, there's a payment thing from the, the police and a lot of the police officers for the trauma that they go through are probably underpaid. Was there ever any kind of temptation to steal while you were in character, so to speak? Okay, I mean, there was copious amounts of opportunities, you know, um, money exchanging hands, or uh, you were telling your handler, I'm buying the... this for 1500 quid, I need 1500 quid up front for it. You don't go up to the drugs dealer and say, Can you give me a receipt for that? Because the accountant back at the old bill. So there was huge trust, but throughout, throughout my service, that I've been getting monitored and everything that I've done. There was never any doubt that I was untrustworthy. There have probably been people who, exactly as you've just described, but certainly my mindset was, No, I'm, I'm here to serve mm. the police service and obviously my family as well being in the blood temptation never ever came across yeah I think because a lot of it is there's this quote I love and it's you are who you surround yourself with very easily but you've got to remember that you've got two brains when you're doing this and one brain saying and even when uh, if I was in a house and I was going to say something out of turn you would think a solicitor might pick that up, that's politically incorrect, you'd be good doing it. But I could do it because I was in character mm. and in role. But half of me thought, I don't want to get a hard time in court for saying something that, okay, I was in character, yeah. but it get probed and then it takes it away from actually what the accused is sitting in the box for. Yeah. So you were constantly, while you were doing things, you were thinking, and like that, 1,500 quid being over, if I was handing over 1,500 quid, I would make sure it was taped. Yeah. And I'd be saying... Right, are you sure there's fifteen hundred quid there? Because I'm a wee wide off of Scotland, Aye. and you know I could be bumping you. And the guy would say, "I'll check it just in case." That's my get out of jail card. So you were putting that in place as well subconsciously. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. If uh, I was fortunate because financially we were sound, my wife working, and we'd, our mortgage was reasonable, the temptations were never there. Yeah, you know, my temptation was to try and get a bigger and better deal, hmm. try and get a bigger fish. That's what that's what I get the buzz out of. And who's the biggest fish you got? Can you can you say that or is that? Uh, no, no. I would probably say the 
the most um, the biggest sentence was a guy in the gym. Yeah. Um, he he got ten years. Ten years. He lost his business. Uh, the financial uh, investigation team took his house away from him. Yeah. Took his car. His wife ended up in a council house. That's sore. Aye, that's a lot. You know, that's sore. And now when I think back and I think, well, you know, many kids took ecstasy or ended up in intensive care. Could he have been part of the heroin team that was bringing it in? Hmm. But um, he put a contract out on me. Did he? Yeah, he'd made it known to try and get me, but he's a lot older now as well and things have moved on and I'm quite sure he's back into it. But as I say, you look back and you think, hey, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Hmm. And you mentioned drugs nowadays in terms of so many children, so many, uh, even adults, they'll go to a festival, they take one pill of ecstasy because they want to have a good time and it'll kill them. And there was a story that, that I was actually at Creamfields when I was like 17 years old, I was a young kid, had a lot more hair. You knew me back then. <laughs> um, but my pal and I were going into one of the, the big bass tents, big techno music. There was a guy on the ground and he was shaking and he was pale and we said, listen, mate, you all right? And he said, fuck off. And I said, all right. Yep. Walked in, came back out and there was a body bag stretching him off and he died and he'd taken a dodgy ecstasy pill. And it's, it's, it just kind of r- r- runs at home how serious this kind of stuff is. And a lot of the time the drug dealers, all they care about is money. So they'll cut it with this everything shit, like like genuinely acid. So what is the actual stuff that they cut drugs nowadays with? It used to be, I think it was, um, was it BMA, they get chemicals, but I think now that things have changed so much that, um, I'll take an example, the scheme in Easter House, somebody will maybe buy, uh, I used to say 10 or bags, I don't know what it now is, now it's probably 25 quid for a bag of uh, a smack. Um, they'll probably buy two or three bags, cut it two or three times, and they'll get their money tenfold back, and they'll be putting in agents that's under the sink. Um, bear in mind, they burn it off, a lot of them burn it off in a spoon, so they think they're getting a good deal, but all mm. that's going to be left is the heroin. But they've burnt off Domestus, Vim, different things. Um, oh, my God. It just, and even when I was doing it down in the, the northeast, the, they were selling a thing called skunk, mm. and it was like grass. It was... And they were putting in different vegetables, cutting them up and putting them in the same colour. And those guys are smoking, maybe smoking a carrot. <laughs> Hi. You know, and, and that's just but that's just the name of the game. Right. And my argument to that would be is legalise it. Yeah. Legalise yeah. it, devalues it. Yeah. And then it means that your good dealers are selling good gear and people are going to buy good gear as opposed to mm. the crap. And it's the same your story with ecstasy. Mm. You're going to start getting good ecstasy. But it's... As soon as things come legal as well, it's a bit like, do you remember when you were, I, I remember buying booze underage and I thought, you're beauty, I can buy alcohol. It's a buzz. And it's such, it's the adrenaline rush, yep. right? Absolutely. As soon as you, it was legal, I thought, oh, I don't really want to drink anymore because it's legal. <laughs> you're absolutely right. It it's is. The, it the same it thing. takes a buzz out of it. Yeah. It really does. But I mean, society will, will change. You know, I'm dead and buried and you're ready to go. It'll still be the same. Nobody, our governments will never ever realise it. Yeah, they did something very interesting in Australia. I was in Australia end of last year, from yep. the year, <clears throat> and uh, smoking in Australia is so not cool. Right. Whereas here, you go out and you smoke a cigarette, and everyone's like, yeah, it's just so not cool because the government have installed policies 
um, and really hit home the the, the, the risks of cancers, yep. of, of, of the, the effects that smoking has. Vaping is totally illegal, whereas here they've taken oh, up God. every single God. Chinese, you know, built, mass-produced, factory-run factory piece of shit that yep. is a vape. Yep. They're putting it into small kids' hands. They're Aye. making them the color of highlighters Aye. so that the kids think they're really cool. Aye. Addicted to nicotine, yep. and then the, the next step is smoking. Yep. The, the government here seem to get any kind of stimulant so wrong in terms of just how they operate it. They allow people to totally capitalize on children, yeah. so to speak. I think, but I think you're right. Back to your point: if you were to legalize it, you know exactly what's in it. You know exactly um, how much you're giving over. You know totally. the risks when you buy it, yep. and also it puts all the drug dealers out of business that, overnight. That's exactly it. Yeah. The worry then is. What do they move into? You know, do we then do they start moving into child prostitution? Do they start moving into uh, things like that, mm-hmm. porn, different things, and then that suddenly becomes a, an issue? But it's just a fact of life. Yeah. You know, it's that society will never ever change it. Mm. We can try and reduce it. Um, I think we live in such a conservative con- country that they don't want to mm. really push it. Mm. Mm. In throughout your career, you've probably had some heavy, tough times and also some proud moments. Yeah. What do you think the toughest times have been, but also the proudest moments off the back of them? Okay, I think the toughest time was going through my probation as a, a young cop. Um, I was successful because of my stature um, and because obviously my background running about with guys, I was particularly small. When I joined the police, um, the the guys were coming down from the Highlands to join the police and they were all six foot four. And uh, I used to walk up Sucky Hall Street and the guy next to me was maybe six foot three and I'm five foot eight and it was like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, <laughs> generally. <laughs> and it was always good because if somebody wound us up, they get to jail. <laughs> um, and, and on that particular story, um, I... I, I Found it hard because the, the culture of the police then was very different. They drank, uh, and now I'm going back a good number of years, they drank a lot mm. and the publicans looked after the police because there was always fights in the pubs. The only place in the city centre was somewhere to drink. All your outlying areas in Glasgow didn't have pubs. Castle Milk, Easter House, you know, even the West End didn't have a lot. You had to come into the city centre on a Friday and Saturday night. So the rival gangs would come in and people would get out of their face through alcohol. So the publicans favoured the police. And because a lot of the police in the city at that time came from the the, the highlands, um, they were heavy drinkers. Mm. So the payback then would be you'd go in and clear the pub out at 11 o'clock and there'd be no fighting and the, the police were in there and clearing them out. And then when the streets get quiet, the police would go back and instead of getting a cup of tea, it would be a pint and a whiskey. And that was a culture it was a very, very... And then the Indian restaurant started to come in, like Sucky Hall Street. Gibson Street was the first Indian restaurant. Moved over to Sucky Hall Street, the Gandhi, all these restaurants. And then the police done the same again because you get no pairs, failed to pay for their meal. So they were getting a drink mm. and they were getting a curry at the end of the night. And it was just... It was a culture. Mm. However, going back to the hard times for me was being accepted because one... Um, the people who came down from the north of Scotland were either we free... Tuchters, as we call them in, in Scotland. Um, but they were also Protestants. And I was never religiously 
involved. I was a Catholic. I was my mother was a Catholic. My father was a Protestant. She wanted her son brought up in a Catholic school. I wasn't a practicing Catholic. I never went to church. I took my first communion. I think that was the last thing I ever took. But because of the culture and the police service, I was a small cop and a Tim, a Catholic. Mm-hmm. And the rest were probably 96 or 7% of the guys I worked with in uniform as a probationary cop were all either Masonic, Orange Lodge, or they were wee frees from Scotland, but they were onto the drink. And the first two years of my life was hard um, to be accepted. Although my father was a cop, and they always thought that my father was a Protestant, which he was, but he wasn't practising. But the, the, the network I was with, I got a hard time on it, until um, a particular Saturday night in Sucky Hall Street and uh, there was a, a stag do coming out it used to be a pub called Maggie Mays in Sucky Hall Street particularly a riotous pub and it was a kick off and it came out onto the street and the guy I was working with who was the oldest cop in the shift he was a you know he's a mentor he's the guy you want to follow he gets seven colours of shit kicked out of him mm. and he got knocked out and on the floor at that time there was a lot of retired cops were going into taxis mm. in the city and of course Taxi, Sucky Hall Street, been a busy place. Few taxis, seen the fight. Young cop, old cops in the deck. I've got my wooden bat now, trying to mm. clear them back, putting out a call for assistance. Four or five taxi drivers who are all retired cops. So it jumped out, came over, and they kicked the shit out of this team mm. that were onto us. And there, their legs were pointing in different directions. <laughs> they were all lying on the floor, covered in blood. The taxi drivers jumped the taxi and drive off, and I'm left standing with my baton. <laughs> And of course, all the other cars come up and they think, because <laughs> I'm, I'm never going to burst and say, oh, I was a taxi driver. I says, I they don't mess with me. And I lived in that for oh, maybe 18 months. This wee guy failed this crowd. The truth being, I was shit myself. <laughs> so taxi drivers that sorted it out. But I then became accepted. And mm. I then get taken for a drink. Uh, and then they began to realise that this wee guy, who's a garbles boy, ran about and has done a few things. And my career started taking off, but that was hard times. And I always remember that uh, no matter what walk of life I went into, if somebody new comes into the fold, give them a chance because they're an outsider looking in, and it's a mindset thing. Because I revert back to the hard times I got. Why should I give this guy here a hard time if he's learning about computers or learning about whatever he's learning about? Mm. Take him in, and you'll develop them better. Mm. That's, and that's did, been my philosophy. Did you learn anything about? the management of people that you could share in terms of how to effectively manage someone that's maybe a little bit different? As you said, someone coming yep. in that's maybe making mistakes. Well, when I, um, without giving too much away, when I um, left the police service, I had this copious amount of experience. Where am I going to get a job with what I've got in my CV? You know, you kind of walk into a company and say, well, give me a job. And mm. they'll say, well, what, what are we going to do? Um, I was fortunate, I moved into a company in Glasgow who were, uh, they used to do, surve- they were setting up a surveillance team, it was an insurance company, and they were wanting to set up a surveillance team for surveillance frauds, you know, people who have fell down, broke their leg, but they're actually, hmm. they're back at work, or they could go back to work, but they're wanting to get a bigger claim. So they asked me to pull together a surveillance team, which I started to do, but wasn't enjoying it because it was the same old, same old. I'd done that for X amount of years and now I'm teaching civilian people how to do surveillance. And Not that they weren't good at it, it's just my heart wasn't in it because I wasn't getting the adrenaline rush yeah. that we spoke about. And a job came up one day and it was for a particularly um, mainstream uh, retailer 
and they were looking for a security manager for the Glasgow area. And I thought, I'll have a look at that. Cut a long story short, got the job and I had a cluster of stores in Glasgow city centre or the surrounding area and uh, the losses were going through the roof, internal theft was bad and I thought I'm going to educate these guys because I know how to do it. Cut a long story short again, the losses came down, the profits went up and my boss came to me and said, what are you doing differently? I said I'm talking to them the way they want to be talked to, Hmm. I'm cascading the knowledge that I've got and trying to tell them this is how you do it and if you do it better you'll improve your sales you'll reduce your losses and you're educating your staff and training your staff and then I went on to management within the company and then the finance director got hold of me and says you're making a difference in your sales you're increasing your sales you're reducing your losses morale's good absenteeism has completely dropped the numbers what are you doing differently? Nothing I've just talked to them hmm. they're human beings we're talking to them, looking in my big stick and saying, you get that done, you get this done. So subsequently, um, he said to me, when your boss retires, who was down in London, Rickmansworth, he said, apply for the job. Mm. And this was within four years. And I ended up heading up the company. And I moved on to take on another high street company as well. And uh, I never looked back. And it was always treat people the way you want to be treated. You know, um, and if they're thick and it's not happening, well, give them another opportunity and train them. Try and get them up to it. And if it's not working, then you need to sit down and have a conversation say, look, this is not working for you. Have you thought of maybe moving on to something else? Or whatever? And I have run businesses. I've bought businesses throughout the years. I've been involved in numerous things, pharmacies, um, Microsoft, Symantec down in London. Um, and it's always been my philosophy because it's not guns and bullets. Mm. Nobody's going to die. If there's a problem, we'll sort it. If we don't sort it, then there is a problem, we're not doing it right mm. and we need to pull somebody in that can help us to do it but nine times out of ten we get it and that's my philosophy if you get companies I'm working for and I, and I, I still go down to London quite a bit and you know, you go in and you'll see somebody who's particularly aggressive and mm. you say change it, just hone it down a wee bit you can get it over um, I went in a course for assertiveness and you can tell somebody to be assertive don't do that or you can say, look, don't do that. Yeah. Totally different context. And that's my philosophy in life now is just do the first one. If they don't take it after three or four, they say, look, don't do that. Mm-hmm. And then they'll see a different side of you. But hey. Yeah. I think you're absolutely <clears throat> right in that. I think that a lot of CEOs and a lot of managers, 90% of the time they're, they're taught that you need to be aggressive in business and you need to be the, the, the man you need to be you need to be people need to be scared of you yeah. and uh, that's just the way it should be but actually if you listen to people and people respect you as a person and follow your lead they'll do more for you they'll do a lot more for you Absolutely. and I, and i think that is a really great lesson there what do you think is the proudest proudest moment has been um marrying my wife oh that's a good answer <laughs> that's a good answer i hope you're listening <laughs> no um I think coming through everything that I've done yeah. uh, and and sitting in front of you now and saying, you know what, I've got the book, I've got the t-shirt, um, the light at the end of the tunnel, unfortunately for me, is getting closer and I've still a lot of things I want to do in my life. Mm. Um, this year in particular, uh, I lost a good friend last year uh, through cancer and his exact words were, one, don't ever retire, mm. keep your brain going and two, don't have a bucket list, get it done. 
because he never got that opportunity. In fact, a funny story, he, uh, before he died, I said to him, is there anything you want to do in particular that you haven't done? And he says, I've never had a sports car. He says, I've always wanted a soft-top sports car. And he gave him three months to live. And I says, right, let's do it. Mm. And we went to a reputable company just outside the city. And uh, we got a Mazda wee sports car. I think it was MX-5 soft-top. And it was in the winter. And he drove it up the road, pissing the rain with the roof down. <laughs> Loving it. And he died two and a half months later. We took the car back. And they, they accepted it. We paid £199. He was my business partner. Mm. And uh, so this year was a particularly special year for us. Um, and my wife and I just said, right, let's do everything we want to do. And we'd done our bucket list, toured what we'd done, bought what we wanted. And uh, so, hey, life's for living. I think that's the thing about money as well, isn't it? It's, it's you know, when you're in the grave, you're not going to remember all the money you have in the bank. Correct. You're going to remember the times you shared with your family. You're going to remember buying that car that you really wanted. You're going to remember going on holiday. Memories. Memories. And I think that goes uh, back to life Aye. is create memories with amazing people. And don't really, I mean, listen, having money is great and it relieves a lot of pressure. It does. However, money is there to be spent exactly. and it's just a number. That's it. Absolutely. Um, well, listen, thank you so much. I, I think that thank you. We've, we've, we've got through so much important stuff there that I'm actually trying to dissect in my brain a little bit <laughs> um, but your, your your book Both Sides of the Fence yep. by the way fantastic name was that you that came up with that? it was yeah. yep. we actually said you know it's always been living on both sides of the fence um, right. today I'm buying drugs tomorrow I'm taking the kids out to a pantomime yeah. so I've seen both sides of the fence ah, it's a good name. I was actually out because I, I was doing some research before uh, and I thought that's a really great name for a book <laughs> there was a few other ones thrown but we couldn't uh, we couldn't put them on the front page yeah. Yeah. too many sweary words on it <laughs> well listen thank you so much well, for the thank time. you I really really appreciate good. that good thanks again <laughs>